My name is Johan Kalilian. As an executive coach, I time travel with people. I get to help people create their future from their future. One of the guiding principles that we use as coaches is how future-based language transforms the way the world occurs to us. In other words, the way you speak about tomorrow shifts the way you look at the world today. It also shifts how you interact with that world. Join me as we write a letter from the future with love. Thank you, thank you for for joining us today. Um, this is this is this is my baby, so I'm I'm giving birth. You've recently given birth. Yeah. Word on the street <laughs> is that you have recently given birth to justice. Listen, word on the street is correct. I have recently given birth to justice. Yes, I am a new mom, new ish mom. I've been a foster mom before, but I have an eight month old baby named Justice. Hmm. Um, can you give me some? I mean, I feel like. I could have a, an answer of like why you named your child Justice, but can you give us like some insight into why in the world would you want to name your baby Justice? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, yeah, so my husband and I put a lot of thought into picking a name for our baby and um, Justice came to mind months before the baby was born because we were very much immersed in this world of like social justice, activists, organizers. And from a faith perspective as well, we believe that God calls us to, to do justice and to love mercy. And so um, justice's name comes from scripture. It comes from uh, Micah 6, 8, which says mm. in the Bible, which says to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. So his first name is justice, to do justice. And then his middle name is Sione, which means God is gracious. So it's the mercy part of that scripture. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so his you name know, has a lot of meaning. And it, well, so it, actually, so my name is, is Johan and it, um, it actually means God's gracious gift. Mm. So I feel like me and Justice were connected then. Y'all are connected. Uh, yeah, we're connected. Didn't even know that. That's Yeah, that's... yeah. It's God's <laughs> gracious gift. So I love that name, by the way. Now part of me is like, man, when I have a, a youngster, even if it's you know a girl, I'm going to be like, I'm going to call her Justice too. Absolutely. Well, actually, we didn't know. We chose not to find out what, if Justice's gender or sex before he was born. And so uh, we picked the name Justice knowing that whether the baby was a girl or a boy, we would have the name Justice still for either gender. So Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to steal it then. Hope, right? It's like calling you Justice. Mind. You can steal it. <laughs> I love, well, that so that gives us a little bit of insight into who you are. You know, obviously to have a heart for justice, to be able to name your, your child Justice, we get some insights into who you are and what you're about in the world. But obviously people will be uh, tuning into this and they may not know, you know, who is Lamika Castillo. Lamika Castillo is a time traveler from a world without police. Now, the very notion of this type of world, it's disruptive, it's controversial, and it is extremely divisive in our year, the year 2020. Now, before we buy into the opinions of our world, let's just pause. Let's step into her world, a world where the current concept of policing doesn't exist a world where criminals don't exist, 
a world where we look out for one another alongside one another. Now, I feel like I kind of feel like Rod Sterling right now, and I'm digging it. But this isn't the Twilight Zone, and I'm not inviting you into, you know, a strange world where all these bad things happen. I'm inviting you into a new future, a better tomorrow, a place where everyone belongs. And you may be tempted to allow your inner cynic to take over right now. But just for a moment, I want you to suspend your disbelief. I just want you to sit in the idea of this world. Don't get caught up in the how. That's always my temptation. I don't know about you, but I kind of struggle with that now. How's this going to work? How do we get there? How, how, how? And, and, and that how stifles our creativity. How limits our ability to just reimagine what we have now. I'm not saying it isn't an important question. It's essential. It's absolutely necessary. But not right now. Not at first. First, we must allow ourselves to dream and imagine what the future looks like without the weight of the how. Now, this next portion may sound like I'm about to contradict what I just said, but give me some time. There's this beautiful quote from Paige Fernandez, who's a lawyer for the ACLU, and she gives us this this beautiful insight that, yes, does include the how. We funnel so much money into law enforcement instead of thinking, how do we stop this from the beginning? How can we invest in communities so people don't have to rely on behaviors and actions that have been criminalized by the government? Yes, she is asking how, but this how that she's asking is actually leading us into reimagining what we have right now, as opposed to the limiting how that I spoke about earlier. Now, these shouldn't be radical questions, but some people will hear this and say, now, how dare you? My father's a police officer or my brother's a police officer. My insert close relationship here protects you. Or maybe they'll say that isn't realistic. We always have crime. Or maybe if we abolish the police, what do we do with people who commit crimes? Right? These are all the things that I've heard in response to this idea of a future without police. Now, let's focus on the first. If you're listening to this today and you feel yourself getting defensive because you have a friend or you have a family member who makes a living as a police officer, please bear with me. So in 2050, what does a future with no police look like? Um, I think in 2050, a world without police looks like people, especially Black people, but all people of color, being able to walk around and not feel threatened by by a person in a uniform walking down the street, right? So um, if I'm, I live near a police station and whenever I go out and I see cops, I try to go the other way, right? Because I don't even want to have an interaction with them. 2050, that won't even be a concern. My son being able to drive down the street and listen to his music loud, bumping Tupac, right? To live and die in LA. And um, having no, like not even knowing what a police officer is or ever having a fear that he's going to be stopped because his music is too loud or because he has the top down or because he has rims or what, I mean, whatever it is that he's, he's doing um, at that time. Um, I imagine a place where, you know, it's not just the police aren't present, but there are no prisons present. Like nobody is actually locked up and caged as if they're animals because everybody is seen as a human being. And if there's conflict, we work it out as a community. We have conversation. We look towards transformation and restoration 
not towards punitive measures, which is the way that the system operates now. I also, you know, I, I see the complete abolition of the structures that police stations and I think of transformation of, of pr prison systems, right? Where a place that was a jail before or a prison before is now used for community supports and services, right? That mm -hmm. um, we don't have a lack of resources available for for people for kids to just be, right? Like you got these 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 prisons that used to cage human beings in there and either they've been destroyed or they've been completely redesigned by artists and architects who, um, you know, like people who used to get arrested for tagging are all of a sudden able to like paint on the walls and, and be themselves and be free to just, to just be, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, I don't know, those are the kind of things that, that I imagine in the future in, in 2050 without police being here to tell us that we can't be who we are and express ourselves the way that we um, want to express ourselves and the beauty of all of that. I also have family and close friends who are police officers. As a matter of fact, I just came home tonight from having a, a very meaningful, deep conversation with a friend of mine who's a Chicago police officer. And he is a good, smart, talented human being. And I know that he will be able to transition careers, right? Like if, if it comes to this place where we reimagine things and we no longer need police for a number of reasons, he will find a new profession that draws out the best in him and society. Now, can you imagine someone traveling back to Alabama in the early 1800s before slavery was abolished to help them imagine a world without slavery? I mean, they would definitely have their work cut out for them. They would be speaking to people where owning people was commonplace. They would be attempting to get through to people whose friends and family owned slaves to build their wealth. Our time traveler would say, in 2020, slavery doesn't exist. It's not a perfect world yet, but this part of the world that you accept as necessary is not only unnecessary, it is downright evil. I mean, let's just say it's a quote-unquote nice slave owner, an oxymoron if I ever heard one. Maybe they would say, bless your heart. I can't imagine a world without slaves. This is how we survive. It's all we've known. It keeps us safe, and we take care of our slaves here. Our family and our slaves' family depend on us for food and shelter. I know you mean well, but this is just how we do it around here, and it works for us. What would you do if you were that time traveler? You're trying to appeal to reason, you know, right? You're trying to get through to folks, and 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 what they're using as the backdrop is this is our way of life, and this supports our economic system. How would you persuade someone who can't imagine a world without slavery? In 2020, the majority of the world agrees slavery is immoral and downright evil. Today, this isn't a radical idea. This is factual. But in the mid-1800s, it was radical. It was disruptive. It was controversial. And it was extremely divisive. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly how we respond when people start to talk about abolishing police. When something isn't working, when someone makes a living through the pain and suffering of others, it's time to honor the bigger picture. It's time to honor people. Society should work for the people in it, not the other way around. So let me ask you this. What if we took all the money we pour into fighting crime and we invested it into preventing 
crime? What if we poured it into community educational systems, housing, healthcare, food banks, and community centers? What if we created jobs for people who committed a crime and are now new people? Can you imagine that world? Well, Amika is here to tell us that that world is real. It exists. She is visiting us from the future with love. She's here to invite us into ensuring that that world, her world, a world where we don't need police becomes a reality. I also imagine that because there are no police in 2050, there are resources that are being given to communities for education, right? That means that the school system is not one in which Black children are not being served in the same way as white children in this country, that Latino children are also having access to, you know, whatever resources that they need in the schools. And so that also means that mental health services are provided and there's food and there's housing and we don't have all of these other issues that we currently police for, right? Mm -hmm. There's nobody's, nobody's homeless because we had the money that the, used to go to the police and it actually purchased homes. And so there's no need to police homeless people. Mm -hmm. So all of those different things come to mind for me when I think about the future without police. Yeah. And even so, thinking of is something as simple as reallocating money a big part of what helped us get there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about budgets... So, so one of the things I didn't mention in my bio earlier is that my background is in public policy, right? And mm -hmm. another interesting fact about me is I'm a professor. And so we always talk about in our classes, in our policy classes, when we're our public administration classes, when we're looking at what are the challenges that cities and communities face and how do we address those issues? Nine times out of the 10, the primary concern is that we don't have enough resources, right? We don't have mm -hmm. enough money for that. Why, don't we why do we have 50,000, 60,000 homeless people in Los Angeles? we don't have enough money for housing? Why don't we have free public transportation for everybody? Because we don't have enough money, right? Why, why do our kids not have enough books in their schools? Because we don't have enough money. But when you look at the budget, like here in the city of Los Angeles, you see that over 54% or over 50%, about 54% of the general funds in the city of LA go to policing. That, that means literally billions of dollars are going to pay for people to basically criminalize us. Mm -hmm. Right. They're supposedly here to protect and serve. But what we see is that that's actually not happening, um, mm -hmm. especially not for people of color and especially, especially not for black people. And so getting defunding the police, taking resources from the police and reallocating that money to these other services, not just services, but like meeting community needs, putting parks in communities. Right. We don't have enough money for parks. Now we do. We got billions of dollars from the police. We didn't have enough money to, you know, I, I just imagine like literally there's no homeless people anymore because we are able mm -hmm. to provide housing for them. Um, and so that that's a big part of this world without police is resources being reallocated from police to the base, meeting the basic needs of everybody else. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, it's fascinating because I'm sure you've heard it when you were growing up. I know I heard it when I was growing up where I would ask for something and my mom would be like, well, we don't have money for that. Right. But then I would start to see, well, oh, I started to to pinpoint my mom was giving money to certain things. And then from that, I realized what my mother valued and basically what she was inviting me into valuing as well. So when we hear the government say, well, we don't have money for that. I think what we're hearing is a value system. We're basically Absolutely. right. So it's like, oh, it's not that you don't have money because we have we have lots of money. And even now, I think what's fascinating is 
now they're printing money, right? Like they're they're basically like, oh, you guys need you guys need a little bit of money here, or we're gonna. And they're trying to figure out different ways to help us move through this COVID world. And we're starting to to really get behind the curtain to be like, wait a minute. So if you want money, you can basically just give us checks out of the blue, right? Right. So, like, like where yeah. did that stimulus check just yeah, come from? Yeah, yeah, right. like where did where did that come from? <laughs> right. When when now all of a sudden we needed it, and mm-hmm. in the past, well, what what if we say like we're saying now, it's not that you don't have money. Just be honest with what your value system is. Exactly. I always like to say that um, a a budget is a moral document, right? Mm-hmm. Where like you said, where where you spend your money is where your value is. So if we're spending more than fifty percent of our city's funds, like literally my taxpayer dollars, your taxpayer dollars, everybody's taxpayer dollars is going to policing 54% to the tune of 54%, at least in LA. And in other places, it's 30%, 60%, right? Like a, a range that tells us where our values are, right? hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And, and even to start to think about why is policing so important? You, you start to t- have conversations with people and you start to realize that our country is rooted in so much fear mm-hmm. right we so we create criminal narratives we right there's like the the undocumented person that we have to be careful for there's filling the blanks of all these you know people groups that we believe and many people do believe need to be policed they need they need to be you know put we need to put them in cages they need handcuffs on them because they're so dangerous and then, and then we understand, well, those narratives aren't necessarily true and those narratives are rooted in a deep fear. Right. And we have to ask ourselves where those narratives come from too, right? right? Like where did this narrative that immigrants were somehow very dangerous and we need to police them, where did that come from, right? People like to, to pull out this whole, this whole storyline. You know, we all, we're a nation of immigrants, right? Um, Europeans came here as immigrants in this country too. Perhaps that's why people need to be afraid because we know that they wiped Native Americans out of, off the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, right? Like there was a real genocide, and, but that's not the fear that people are talking about when they say, when they have a fear of immigrants coming in. Another narrative is about around young people, right? That young people need to somehow be policed. They're dangerous. And so we, we have police in our schools to protect everybody, to protect the teachers, to protect the youth from themselves. And it's like, these are children. Why, why do we have, why do we feel like we need police inside of schools? Why are we paying police to the tune of $70 million, like here in Los Angeles, again, with LAUSD, to, to be in our schools to quote unquote protect our kids. But really what they're doing is criminalizing our children, mm-hmm. right? And, and again, where does that narrative come from? Who told us that our kids were dangerous? And why do we think as parents, if you're a parent, why do you believe that everybody else's child is dangerous, but your child is not? Like, who do you mm-hmm. think they're talking about? They're talking about your kids, right? right. Um, and so when we support things like that, we are supporting the criminalization of our children. We're supporting the criminalization of immigrant communities or supporting the criminalization of black and brown men. And, and it's, it, it's something that we need to question. We really need to think critically about these narratives that are, be, that are being put out there and ask ourselves, why do we believe that if we believe it? Where did that come from? And if it's not true for, for you know, my son or my husband or you know, my immigrant neighbors, why do I think that that's true for other people? Why are they somehow scary um, and and people we need to protect ourselves from. It's it cl- clearly very problematic, and there's a, a larger, I think, larger systems at play that are creating that that narrative and making it um, difficult for for folks to be okay with a world without policing because they have bought into this lie that somehow everybody else is dangerous and police are going to protect us from these like evil people. One of the buzzwords being thrown out is like defund police, 
And then the other, the other word right now is like abolish police. And I, I would say that a lot of people are basically, you know, they're, they're resisting words like buzz, buzzwords like that, right? Where do you think the resistance come from? Is it, is it strictly fear? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I think some of it is fear. And I, I think it's one fear of the unknown. I think a lot of people also have a sense that police are actually here to protect them. You know, as, a, as an organizer with Black Lives Matter and as a professor and somebody who, who has done research on these things, I know that the history of policing is actually rooted in slave catching, mm-hmm. right? And I think if people understand that narrative, like the reality is police were not, they weren't created to protect and serve people. They were created to protect and serve property, capitalism, and white supremacy, right? That's why they were formed. And they are a remnant of slavery. They're a remnant of enslavement of Black people in this country. They also um, kept, they also were, were, were created to protect white folks' property from indigenous people, from native folks, right? So if you see a native, a native person coming along, you need to protect us from them because they're, this, like, they're savages, right? That was the, that was the narrative that was painted. Um, if you see a Black person who's walking by themselves, um, they're not with their master. That person is clearly trying to escape slavery. Like your job is to patrol them and, and, and make sure that they come back because they're property. And mm-hmm. so if um, policing, if that's the history of policing, like how can we ever justify keeping something like that? Like that's why I think, you know, you, you mentioned buzzwords like defund and abolish. I'm, I'm definitely for abolishing the police. And I think defunding is a way to get there. Other folks I've heard are, you know, interested in reforming. And I just think, how can we, we can't reform a system that was created to keep my ancestors enslaved, to keep us enslaved, right? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. And so when you, again, when you question, well, where do police come from in the first place? Who are they protecting and serving? If they're not protecting and serving folks, why, why do we still have them? If they're eating up so much of our budgets, why are we still paying for them? If we know that we need, you know, other resources for the community, and if we just took some of that money from police that we would be able to provide those resources, why don't we do that? It just, I think that people need to, again, really unpack these things and question every single um, belief that you have and, uh, and dig deeper into where that comes from and then unravel that for yourself. Right. You yeah. know, and then these buzzwords won't feel like buzzwords anymore, right? Like we've been saying abolish the police and defund the police for years, but just, you know, after George Floyd's death, it became more like acceptable, like, oh yeah, we should defund the police or maybe we should consider defunding the police. Um, but that's not a new concept, right. right? And so again, I think people just have to explore that further for themselves. Yeah, and a, and a big part of why, you know, we wanted to do this show is like, how do we help people reimagine the future, right? Like, or, or even reimagine our current reality based on the future. Yeah. Because I think many of us have, um, it's like an imagination block because we think right now is all there is or we look at the past and we think the past is going to determine the future instead of allowing the future to determine the future. And that's part of why we wanted to have future-based conversations to say, let's start to really dream up a world. Like, would you love to live in a world where police don't exist? And when we start, because so, so many people would say, it's just not possible. It can't happen. Yeah. And, and that's part of the work that I do you know, with different executives, people who own their own business. I help them create goals first that they think are impossible. And then sure enough, when we go do the work, they're there. And they're like, I didn't think this day would come. And so how do, you know, that's the thing that I want to create here is like, how do we create a sense of hope reimagining this thing called human existence so that we can start to actually dream up a world where you don't have to worry about walking down the street 
and losing your life to a police officer. You don't have to worry about, you know, um, maybe like smoking a joint. In the past, it was like, I'm going to smoke a joint. Then you get arrested. You're, you're in jail for two years. What? Like, who knows the time frame? You, you think about a Khalif Browder story where this kid, right? It's like a, a small misdemeanor turned into three years of his life in prison, in one of the worst prisons, and then ultimately lost his life. Like, we don't have to worry about those things anymore because these types of environments no longer exist. And the fear that I think I have is that people would say, well, you know what, but we're always going to have crime. We're always going to have people who need to be locked up. So I just can't imagine it. So even if we said there's like some sort of crime enforcement in the future, what does that look like to you? Like if we could start to paint that picture and somebody does take somebody's life, somebody does one of these heinous, and even if we said, you know, because the majority of silly uh, serial killers throughout uh, human history have been white guys. So let's say somebody who's a, a, a white serial killer exists and we, we need to bring him to justice. How do, we, how do we bring him to justice in this future world where police don't exist? Yeah, no, the, again, this is a great question and um, an activity that I actually lead with my students. When we talk about, we read a book called The End of Policing by this guy named Alex Vital, and it freaks everybody out. Everybody's like, what are you talking about? The end of policing? We can't end policing. What are we going to do? And before I even get to the, you know, what if somebody kills somebody, I actually work with my students to walk them through, like, what actually are police doing right now, right? When, when somebody calls the police, are they, does every call that, that 911, that goes to 911, is it always related to some kind of violent crime? And the reality is it's not. The majority of, of police calls are not actually for a violent crime. It's not because police would have you out here thinking that like, I mean, people just out here, you know, in these streets, running these streets, murdering folks, bro- rolling <laughs> right. down and like shooting everybody up. And that's just actually not the case. Yeah. Um, the majority of calls that police receive are for wellness checks, right? Mm. What does that mean? That means that your neighbor is concerned because they haven't seen you come out of your house for a couple of days or, you know, uh, they they heard uh, an argument or something and they didn't know what to do. So they they called the police to say, hey, can you help? And unfortunately, as we know, so many Black people end up dying as a result of a wellness check, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody calls 911, the cops show up and uh, for a wellness check. And then all of a sudden that person is dead. And it's like, I didn't call you to come and kill them. I called you to come and check to make sure that they were okay, right? A lot of the calls that cops get are also for, um, you know, like homeless people, like here in downtown LA, they get a lot of calls because there's a homeless person who is acting, quote unquote, erratic, right? So that's a safety concern, um, mostly for the person themselves. Well, that's a mental health issue, right? It's a mental health issue. Most likely the person is having a mental health crisis. Do we need the police to respond to that type of call? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Actually, not probably not. Absolutely not. They're not trained as mental health service providers, right? And so I think of um, situations like, uh, here in LA, we had a, a young man who was killed just a, a couple years ago at the Crenshaw Mall in South LA because the cops showed up um, when he was having a mental health crisis. His name was Rashario Mack. And the cops showed up and they opened fire on this man, shot him in the back, right? He was not, he wasn't carrying a weapon. They shot him in the back, two officers. He's dead. His family doesn't have him anymore, right? Um, the community doesn't have Rashario anymore because he had a mental health crisis and somebody called the police saying we need help, not because they felt that they were threatened or Rashario was going to kill them, but because he was a threat to himself and people didn't know how to respond, right? So in those cases, who are the right people to show up? It's not the police. Most of the time, it's not the police. For a wellness check, it ain't the police, right? Perhaps um, you know what it looks like is a neighbor actually feeling comfortable enough 
to knock on their neighbor's door and say, hey, I just want to check in on you because I haven't seen or heard from you in a while. Are you okay? Right? That to me, that is what the community, what community care looks like. It's not police showing up to knock on the door and then killing somebody or not police, you know, um, coming to the mall and shooting a man who's having a mental health crisis. There's a mental health professional that could actually show up and take care of that issue. They would provide them with the right resources. Even the Elijah McClain story. Yes, exactly. The Elijah McClain story in in Colorado, right? In, in um, Aurora, mm-hmm. walking down the street, somebody thought that you know there's this he's young got black a mask man on because of has, anemia, <laughs> right? And he's dancing, and people thought he was acting erratic. So he wasn't even having a mental health crisis. He was just being himself. He yeah. literally was just like, "I'm enjoying my music. I play my music. I'm walking down the street, going to my home, and the police show up and kill him." And that happened over a year ago, and there was no prosecution of those cops. Mm-hmm. And now because of the the uprising that is happening, there's more attention drawn to Elijah's story. And now, you know, the governor is saying we need to look into this because this is, there's a concern that the cops are not prosecuted. But that's, I mean, Elijah's story is not unique. It happens regularly here in Los Angeles. We, you know, um, we've had in the past seven years, over 600 people killed by police. Not a single cop has been prosecuted, right? And so, who's the real threat here, right? And mm-hmm. our poli- if police are supposed to help us with the criminals, but they're getting away with murder. I-, I just I just question all of that. So I think reframing the conversation and really helping people focus on the fact that when police are called, it's most of the time, it's not because of some heinous criminal who is out here murdering people in the streets. I'm not going to pretend like those things don't happen. Yeah. That's not the majority of the calls. It's, right. it's for other issues that police are not the right people to respond. And then for those types of crimes where somebody is murdering, I think a few things. One, I always question, how do we get to that point, right? So um, I was listening to um, uh, Black Lives Matter has a weekly town hall. And I was watching the town hall last night. And it was around education and policing. And Dr. Pedro Noguera, who is a professor at UCLA, who's been studying policing in schools, gave a really great example of how when police are called because of some kind of, you know, or like the, why people feel like they need police, the reality is that they needed some kind of intervention before police um, were, would have been needed, right? So mm-hmm. he gave an example of a school shooting. He said, you know, most people feel like we need police in all of our schools to protect children from a school shooting. But there was a school shooting in the Valley at one of the high schools a few years ago. Um, the young man who shot up and killed folks, his mother had passed away recently. He had shown many signs of, need, of, of distress and needing some kind of, you know, again, mental health support, perhaps a counselor or something. And that whole shooting might have been prevented. And on top of that, the police officer who was there, because LAUSD has police at all of these schools, the police officer hid and didn't even stop the shooting from happening. So we are paying this cop to be on the campus to pre- prevent something like this, like a school shooting from happening, or to stop it and, and protect the children and the teachers. And that cop didn't do their job. And even before that happened, we probably could have prevented that type of situation in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think. To me, that's where the conversation needs to go, right? That there are lots of um, interventions and preventions that would keep, keep people from killing folks. Serial killers aside, because serial killers <laughs> are like a, a small, you know, they're a small group yeah. and they have they have some issues and stuff, but they're a small percentage of the population. When when there's some kind of, you know, somebody's being killed, it's usually interpersonal violence, like a, you know, a, a relationship between a man and a woman. A lot of times it has to, or maybe not a man and a woman. It could be two women, two men, and there's some kind of violent violent relationship going on. There needs to be some type of intervention. I don't think that the police are even necessary for that type of intervention. And when the police are called, usually it's already at the it's already too late. Mm-hmm. You no, know? like we should have been intervening beforehand to prevent those things from happening to protect people 
from going down a path of destruction. I want to address the belief that a world without police isn't realistic, that we will always have crime. Now, let's say you're right. We will always have crime. That means there will always be people who break the law. We have had this happen throughout human history. Humans make laws, human break laws. Just because we have people who break the law doesn't mean we have to have high crime rates, though. We don't always have to have criminals. Over the past 20 years, we've seen a steady decline in crime. Whether we talk burglary, theft, assault, or other major violent crimes, in that same time period, the population of incarcerated Americans has risen from 1.3 million people to the current level of 2.3 million people. That's, that's DOJ statistics. One million additional people. That's a little less than the population of Dallas. Twice the population of Miami. And I really want us to think about this for a second. Do you think there are that many more criminals in the U.S.? I mean, two Miami's worth of criminals? Or do the conditions under which black and brown communities live create criminals? I mean, does it, does it create criminality? Communities of color have a stronger police presence. That's, that's factual. Our children are scrutinized by police officers, even in their classrooms. Now think about the last time you were pulled over. Did you feel like you were in the mental space to take an algebra test? The infrastructure and resources in black and brown communities, they're ignored. And this has nothing to speak of redlining and gerrymandering and voter suppression and unfair tax policies that all provide advantages to white communities, and dehumanized people of color. The United States first makes criminals, and then it punishes them. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked, what does an America with defunded police look like? And she pointedly said, it looks like a suburb. Affluent white communities already live in a world where they choose to fund youth, health, housing programs more than they fund police. These communities have lower crime rates, not because they have more police, but because they have more resources to support healthy society in a way that reduces crime. Now, can you imagine that world? Well, time travelers like AOC and Lamika are here to tell us that that world is real. It exists. I mean, AOC saying it exists right now in certain suburbs. I mean, you could look at certain parts of the world. There are countries where it exists. Now, Lamika is bringing in this new concept to say, hey, America can get there too, and I'm, I'm coming to you from that place. She's visiting us from that world, and she's telling us we can be a part of this, and she's inviting us into creating that world, her world, our world. A world without police can become a reality. I mean, just pause for a second. Don't you want to live in that world? A world full of health, vitality, and true restorative justice. A world where the community holds space and creates pathways for redemption when we break the law. A world where crime and law enforcement is the exception, not the norm. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, prison abolitionist, activist, and scholar, penned a New York Times article titled, Is Prison Necessary? 
She highlights how the murder policy in Spain, where it's quite rare for one person to kill another. I mean, the average time you might serve for murdering someone in Spain is, is about seven years. And here's what she says. What this policy tells me is that where life is precious, life is precious. People have decided that life has enough value that they are not going to behave in a punitive and violent and life-annihilating way toward people who hurt people. Now that is a future worth living for. And according to Lamika and Ruth and AOC, that is exactly what we can achieve. It isn't impossible. It exists. It is real. Lamika is visiting us from that world, her world, and she is bold enough to point us in that direction. The question is, are you ready? And you can look at models, not just in the U.S., but abroad, right? Like there are whole countries. Costa Rica does not have a military, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> They, they don't they don't have people policing folks like that. And so when we if we can see that in other places, what is it that is so unique and different about the U.S. that we we can't imagine a world without police? I think I think it's just because we've been honestly brainwashed to think yeah. that we need them. And and I'm not convinced of that. It, I've never been convinced of that, honestly, just because I've had such negative experiences my whole right. life. But I'm, I'm hopeful that more people will see that this is not it's not necessary and that we can have a different world because. I need it. Like my son needs that, right? Yes. Justice, justice, ha- his chance of survival here is very low if we continue to have policing operate in the way that it does. Now I want to address this, this final question. If we abolish the police, I mean, what do we do with the people who commit crimes? If that's you, I mean, it's been me. Like I'm, I'm asking that same question. If that's the question you're asking right now, I think it's a good one. It's a question that must be answered. And I want to be clear, abolishing the police won't happen overnight, right? The people in our world and time travelers from the future like Lamika are highly intelligent, thoughtful leaders. They have devoted their life to reimagining and creating a world without police. They have a plan and it's not half-baked. They, they, they know the police will not disappear with the press of a button. This isn't like we're just going to cut a cord and it's going to happen tomorrow. Arriving at a future with no police will happen gradually. It starts with reallocating funds instead of spending billions and billions of dollars on policing people. We can spend that money on educating, feeding, housing, employing, and providing necessary social services for people. Lamika and other time travelers like Alex Vital, who wrote The End of Policing, argue that rather than focusing on police reform or officer retraining, the country needs to reconsider fundamentally what it is the police should be doing at all. A future with no police can only become a reality when we release police from being the ones we call on to handle all of our problems. We can start to allow social workers to check in for what we call wellness checks. We can employ more counselors in schools. We own the responsibility of the safety of our neighborhoods, right? Like that's that's on us. We don't just put it on the police. We provide healthcare workers for our drug addicts instead of throwing them into prison. We decriminalize homelessness and mental illness. Instead of throwing all these responsibilities on police, we find new and imaginative ways that we haven't even mentioned yet. Now, this vision of the future can't happen 
without us. Albert Einstein, a time traveler in his own right, once said, logic will get you from A to B, but imagination will take you everywhere. And that's our invitation from the future. A future without police requires our full imagination. It requires an imagination that can see a world where more people follow the law than break it. As hard as that is for us to comprehend right now, it requires an imagination where we take care of our neighbor instead of fear them. It requires an imagination where love reigns supreme and we all have access to the resources we need to thrive. It requires a future where there is no other. You know what I'm talking about? Them. The people that we live in terror of. It requires people like you and me to not only imagine that future, but we do what it takes to bring it to life. You see, because a future with no police, it requires our full imagination. Are you willing to live from that future with love? You know, I've never been one to sugarcoat things or hold my tongue. So I, I got to start by saying that you and I both know that our relationship has never been perfect. But as I look at where we are today versus where we were 30 years ago, I'm genuinely proud of the progress we've made and I'm hopeful about the change that is still to come. You remember my son, Justice, right? It's hard to believe, but he's 30 years old with a life of his own. Before Justice was born, my greatest fear in life was to give birth to a beautiful black baby and subject them to the pain that comes with living life in this black skin. I was especially concerned about bringing a precious little person into a world that would not love them, that would not see them in the image and likeness of God, and would not appreciate them for who they are. I was afraid to bring a child into a world that did not value their life and would allow racism and hatred to steal them from me. You know, I've always fought for something different, something better. You know, I've committed myself to the work of seeking justice and liberation, fighting for freedom of the oppressed. I knew that the struggle would be long and arduous. I knew progress would be slow. But never did I imagine that we'd see such tremendous change in such a short time. Since the global uprising of 2020, things have changed a lot. My baby has never experienced racial profiling. He has no idea what a police officer is because thanks to the powerful work of millions of people marching in the streets and advocating for the defunding of police with Black Lives Matter, we have not only reimagined public safety, we've realized it. No one is locked away in a cage because prisons don't exist. Imagínate. No prisons. I know it's unbelievable, but it's true and it's incredible. All of the children who grew up in Justice's generation still can't believe that we ever had them. I'm glad they've never known what it was like to live in a world where people were murdered by the people who were supposed to protect and keep them safe. That people becoming hashtags is a foreign concept. Side note, they call hashtags pound signs again. <laughs> I think it's funny too. Makes me feel young again. This generation has other battles to fight, but having to prove to the world that Black Lives Matter isn't one of them. They value life now in the ways that I had always wished the world would way back then. World 2020, although I have a lot of painful memories from the time we were together, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that so much of the progress we have today is because of you. You were relentless in your struggle to be better, and you pushed so many people to struggle along with you. Because of that, we are here in a much stronger and healthier world, one that I'd always hoped for but didn't know was possible in my lifetime. Because of you, we are closer to freedom than we've ever been. For that, I am grateful. Thank you, World 2020. Because of you, we are.
next episode of From the Future with Love, we'll be talking about a future where we've canceled cancel culture. We'll speak with a very special guest, one of my best friends, Dr. Mateo Sandoval, professor at Barrett Honors College at Arizona State University. We'll travel through time to give us insight into how we ensure a future where cancel culture has been canceled. From the Future with Love was written and performed by yours truly, Johan Kalilian, produced by Rithu Jagannath and Matthew Jones, fact-checked by Rithu Jagannath, editing, mix, and tech production by Hammond Chamberlain, photography by Jess Kaler, and graphic design by Ivan Lizarde. Special thanks to Lamika Castillo for visiting us from the future, and to everyone who is a part of our time traveler community, thank you, and I'll see you in the future.